Amoebas and ape men, DNA and dinosaurs, fossils and the flood. What do all these have in common? Stay tuned as we examine the twin topics of evolution and creation up ahead on today's Bible Questions podcast. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Jeff, and with me today is my co-host, Brian. How are you doing today, Brian? Hey, Jeff. Doing very well. Thanks. A few years ago, uh, I pulled together some material for our teenager class uh, at our congregation on the subject of, quote-unquote, Christian evidences. Uh, which basically is the evidence for the validity of the uh, Christianity. And in that particular uh, study, we kind of covered three things. One is you know, evidence for a supreme being who created all things, uh, the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, which reveals the true nature of that supreme being, and the evidence for you know Jesus Nazareth being the Son of God. Uh, sometimes that's also called Christian apologetics. You know, not an apology, uh, like we sometimes use the word today, but reasoned arguments or writings in justification of uh, things, in this case, the Christian faith. So uh, today, Brian and I would like to uh, talk with our listeners to briefly share some of this class material, uh, focusing on the first of those topics, that being the evidence for the existence of a supreme being, you know, creator of the heavens and the earth. And that if our listeners happen to be interested in this topic and would like to dig even deeper into the details, uh, we would certainly encourage them to visit our website at BibleQuestions.org and look under the Lessons menu item for a subtopic called Christian Living, and then underneath that, the subject of Christian Evidences. So, Brian, I, I think for, for starting off, I think we need to lay a little bit of groundwork because there are several different, if you will, world views about the subject of the Supreme Being. I mean, certainly there is the topic or the position, I guess I should say, of atheism that says, you know, there is no God, there is no Supreme Being. Uh, people may also hear of uh, agnostics, those that would say, mm, we can't tell, it's you know somewhat uncertain, may or may not be. And then, of course, there's theism, which says, you know, yes, there is some kind of God or, or supreme being. Uh, and, of course, those kind of worldviews lead to certain, I'll call them value systems. Because, you know, if there is no God, then, you know, pretty much everything we see is, is all there is. Uh, sometimes that's called naturalism. That there's only natural laws, natural forces, you know, at, at work uh, in the world. That everything we see, cause and effect, you know, is all natural. There, there is no supernatural, so to speak. That's one kind of value system. Another kind of value system is, is what we might loosely call Judeo-Christian ethics. You know, based on, in general, the teachings of the Bible. You know, the existence of a Creator. Uh, in fact, a lot of our uh, American laws are sort of based on that to some degree, you know, reflecting the influence of the Old and New Testament. In fact, and Brian, it's interesting, even within our uh, Declaration of Independence, yeah, after mentioning the laws of nature and of nature's God, which is a quote, 
yeah, it, it starts off with a very familiar uh, quotation. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So we see even the, the framers of uh, our constitution, the framers of the Declaration of Independence, uh, you know, late 1700s, you know, they acknowledged, you know, the existence of God and sort of baked it into the uh, you know, foundation, if you will, uh, of the uh, United States. The other factor, you know, again, given these two different world, worldviews and these two different value systems, it really often comes down to how it influences us. You know, our, our view of the supernatural, our view of the existence of something, someone out there and our behavior. You know, is there a quote unquote higher power that sets the standard of what's right and wrong? And it's going to hold us accountable because if there's nothing out there, we're on our own. If there is someone out there who is indeed the creator, well, if we're his creation, then biologic, then there's certain, you know, responsibilities that would be involved. And that's kind of where we get to kind of seeing this expressed in today's world. Uh, certainly, at least here within the United States, you know, this naturalism, uh, evolution is is dominant. I mean, you have to admit it. You know, in public schools with our kids, on science programs, museums, even the government now to to some degree, you know, say, you know, are promoting you know natural evolution. Uh, even some religious denominations within quote unquote Christianity. Sad to say. Uh, on the other hand, there's the promotion of theism, you know, Judeo-Christian ethics uh, within some churches. Um, although even in that case, sometimes it's only offered as, well, it's a matter of faith. You know, you just have to accept what the Bible says on blind faith. You know, we're not really going to talk any about things from a scientific perspective. Uh, other you know, religious groups may say, yes, there is a creator, but he used evolution, quote unquote, theistic evolution over millions of years, which is kind of a, a compromise between, you know, pure evolution and, uh, you know, pure creationism. And then you may have some groups that will say, yes, yes, God did create everything, but millions and billions of years ago, some people call that old earth creationism. And others will say, well, no, the biblical record seems to indicate that he created everything and it wasn't that long ago. So even within uh, religious groups, there's quite a bit of, of diversity. And of course, a lot of people say, well, you know, this whole argument's kind of moot because after all, there's science and there's the Bible and those are two different worlds. And science obviously is fact-based and the Bible is obviously faith-based. Well, that's not really fair either uh, because even within the world of science, uh, you have to understand that generally scientific pursuits are looking for natural causes you know it's there's the the presumption or the assumption that hey i'm looking for the best natural reason the best natural cause cause and effect etc and I, I don't want to rely on any sort of supernatural well that's an assumption if you will key point brian i think is is you know what's a christian's um perspective or responsibility you know toward these things toward evidence toward investigating uh, certainly the Bible speaks about truth and our need to investigate it. Uh, John 8, 32, you should know the truth, and truth is what makes you free. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, test all things, hold fast what is good. 
First uh, Peter 3.15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you in meekness and fear. In other words, it's not a blind faith. Uh, and that kind of puts Christians in kind of a weird spot uh, because there's, you know, there's a lot of assertions that scientists make that, uh, you know, Christian, if they're not prepared, may have trouble with. You know, scientists say the earth is you know, four plus billion years old. How can you say it's created only thousands of years ago? Or scientists say that, you know, life came from non-living matter by some natural processes in an ancient primordial sea. How can you say it was created supernaturally? Or scientists may say the fossil record shows a lot of, you know, steady transition of simple forms buried deep in the earth to more complex forms, you know, closer to the surface. You know, how can you believe every all the plants and animals were created in a week? Or scientists may say, hey, we found all this fossil evidence that apes evolved into men. How can you say man was created? And so there's a lot of challenges. You know, Christians, particularly in an evolution-dominated culture, um, are, are faced with. Now, certainly the Bible acknowledges the role that we can learn about God from his creation. Uh, in fact, uh, Psalms 19. It starts off with the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Uh, Brian, uh, for our listeners, why don't you go over and read uh, Acts 14, eh, roughly 15 through 17. Sure. Uh, here it says, We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Right. And of course, you know, later on, the Holy Spirit through Paul asserts something very similar. Uh, Romans chapter one, beginning verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So we see from Brian these passages that, you know, there are certainly evidences in the natural world, you know, left behind by the Creator, that points to the creator. You know, the creation points to the creator, so to speak. And I know some Christians, you know, kind of shy away from the science side of this topic, you know, creation and evolution. And they may prefer to, you know, quote scripture. But practically speaking, if you're dealing with, you know, people in the world or with your kids that are being raised in public schools and are being fed a diet of quote unquote science, and a pure appeal just to the scriptures may not have that much weight, uh, particularly if people have been indoctrinated all their lives in this, you know, dominant dogma, if you will, of what quote unquote, you know, science has to say. So anyway, I say all that to say one of the things I did in my class was I really tried to emphasize the science side of the evidence. And yes, indeed, as we'll kind of get into in our podcast, um, there's a lot of science you may not hear about because it doesn't support evolution. It really supports creation. 
So, Brian, all of that is kind of like introductory, kind of laying some foundation. Do you have any uh, thoughts before we uh, start digging deeper? Yeah, you know, this question of how did we get here uh, is really a question I think most would ask within their life, right? We're just curious. How did we get here? And, you know, I feel like this is also an important subject because at least here in the United States, evolution has permeated our school systems and really is not only presented, but just assumed to be fact, uh, not just within our schools, but really in many parts of our society. And so, you know, in my life, this is a conversation, you know, evolution versus creation or evolution in general that I've had with many people when talking to them about religion. And, and often it's because they also are curious and they also see this potential conflict. It's actually not even potential, right? This real conflict between what the Bible says and what man says, what the philosophies of men are. And so as we get into this study, what our listeners will find out is it can get pretty deep. And our goal isn't to kind of lose you in, in all the details, but to give you kind of at a high level, as simply as we can, what some of the basic premises are for evolution, for creation, and then hopefully, you know, spark some interest, right, Jeff, for our listeners to go out and dig a little bit deeper uh, if they really want to get into it deeper. Yeah, and that's a good point because, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist. You know, I'm really more of an engineer. Um, and, you know, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a physicist. You know, I, I don't study you know, cellular biology, <laughs> you know, as a career. Um, and you're right, this can get real deep, real confusing, real quickly. Uh, and so I think what we're going to try and do is, is give people some of the more simpler kind of perspectives and definitely uh, would encourage them to, you know, research it further. Um, as you said, we, we do have some materials on our website, including my original notes in the class that I gave. Uh, that we can uh, certainly encourage people to take advantage to, to really dig deeper into this very, very deep and potentially confusing topic. So where do, where do we want to start with uh, actual uh, material? Yeah, I think a good starting place is, you know, kind of looking at the three main explanations that are offered by many for the origin of the universe, for the origin of, you know, the earth and life and man. And so really, when you think about kind of the three main explanations that are given, the most common, of course, when it comes to evolution is just natural evolution. And so this would be at a simple level, you know, transformation from one kind to another. And uh, so, for instance, you have, you know, stellar evolution is one belief where you have, you know, uh, this Big Bang. And, and some of these theories we're going to talk about in more detail, no doubt. And Big Bang is one of them. Right. So, you know, some believe that we came from nothing. There was this Big bang, which expanded the universe that resulted in there being stars, um, you know, the sun, right, which is really the center of our solar system, some believe kind of coalesced out of dust. Then you had this, you know, hot earth and moon that, you know, uh, that existed once again, just by chance. So all of this, you know, as it relates to Big Bang is, hey, this just happened by chance. And there were some good results that came out of that. Um, you know, I, I would ask our listeners to think about does any organization come from chaos but that's you know another something we'll, we'll get into more later uh and then you have you know theories like you know all of this mass cooled to form the global ocean 
Uh, you have some that believe in a chemical evolution, which would be, you know, life from a non-life uh, in a primordial ocean. So you start talking about, you know, amoebas and protozoas and so forth. And like I say, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And then you have like biological evolution. And, you know, when you think about molecules via mutations or through natural selection or something like Darwin called the survival of the fittest, uh, this is what resulted in this biological evolution. So you think about marine life and land plants and land animals and birds and man. The argument, of course, from evolutionists is that all of this happened through things like mutations and natural selection. Uh, you have what you described earlier, Jeff, as young earth creationism, which you know really is the belief that you know this is you know, the literal teaching from the Bible account of creation, where we had not only the creation, but a global flood. Um, you know, the Bible certainly talks about the universe and living organisms were divinely created. And we say relatively recently, you know, within, oh, six to 10,000 years ago. Now that's really a short period of time if you compare it to the millions of years that evolutionists will often cite as how long the earth's been around and how long things have been evolving. So no doubt six to 10,000 years is certainly a lot shorter period of time than the millions of years. The, the second, uh, or I guess I'd say the third is really theistic evolution, as you referenced, Jeff, old earth creationism. So as you pointed out also earlier, this idea of theism means that you believe in a divine being that created everything. And so you have some that do want to combine God and evolution and say, well, but there's room for both. So, you know, you have, for instance, this gap theory where some say, if you look at Genesis chapter one and you read verses one and two, uh, we believe that occurred, but we believe that there was a gap of millions of years between those two verses. And like I say, we'll get more into that as, as well. Uh, you have some that believe in progressive creation. So this is, you know, the religious belief that God created new forms of life gradually over a period of hundreds of millions of years. So you might say that God kind of put things in motion and then he just let evolution kind of take its course. And then you have a, a theory, day age theory, the belief that the six days referred to in Genesis, you know, when God created the earth in six days uh, are not ordinary 24 hour days, but rather a much longer period of time. So thousands or millions of years. And so, you know, we're going to talk about these philosophies of men in more detail later in the study, but just at a high level, Jeff, we kind of have those three, right? Natural evolution, creation and the global flood that we read in the Bible, or a combination of both through theistic evolution. Right. And one reason why I think it's useful to highlight these three, because in essence, they're three very different models or very different um, proposals, if you will that are offered to explain the evidence that's available. And of course, that's, that's the key question. You know, we can go out and we can gather evidence and look at the evidence and then say, okay, given the evidence that we have, all right, which seems, to f which model of these three seems to fit you know, the, the evidence we have. And that's, that's a normal kind of scientific process. So even though we're talking about a biblical subject, we can talk about it within a scientific way. You know, you gather the evidence. I got multiple, you know, 
not not complimentary. They're more contradictory. You know, models. Okay, so which one seem which one seems to fit? And of course, we're kind of uh, we'll be doing that as we kind of go through our study today. Um, Brian, any other thoughts before we uh, talk about the origin of life? Uh, no, let's dive right in. All right. So, and again, this this is going to get pretty deep pretty quickly, but we'll try to to help you through it. So, it starts off with a very simple question that gets complex almost immediately. What is life? Okay. Even quote unquote simple life that you may hear that term. Well, and if you pause to think about that, you know, I would need to have some kind of an organism, you know, a cell, if you will, some kind of basic little building block, if you will, that kind of distinguishes it from its environment. What does that really mean? Well, I, I have a cell. I got a cell wall. I got stuff that's within that has some kind of thing going on. And then I got my outside environment. That particular cell wall or cell membrane. Well, okay. So now I'm in an environment. I got to somehow stay viable. You know, this, this membrane around me, some, you know, some has to let some things in and keep other things out. Otherwise, the things that are on the outside will, will harm me. You know, I have to somehow take in energy or I have to take in something that I can, quote unquote, digest. I have to get rid of waste products. Uh, even within in very, very simple life, I have to be able to reproduce, you know, split myself apart and create two of me, <laughs> so to speak. And the two become four, et cetera. You know, in some ways I have to you know, sense my environment, et cetera. So even quote unquote simple life has to have a number of these kinds of things all working together. Otherwise, it doesn't live. You know, it's just a bucket of goo, so to speak. Uh, now, when we act, so that's, that's what life would need. Okay. When we start looking at life down at a level of an individual cell, um, it is just totally mind boggling <laughs> to, to be very blunt. Uh, I mean, the closest thing I could come to is almost like a computer program and a computer. Because I mean, when you actually you know, dig within the cell, you know, you start off with, you know, within the nucleus, you got this genetic material we call, you know, DNA. Uh, fancy, or it's an acronym for a fancy term, deoxyribonucleic acid. Yeah. But that's that's basically the, the the core, you know, building blocks of life within the you know genetic material. Well, that genetic material is just like a computer program, right? as all these different codes. Um, but in and of itself. It can't do anything. You need some mechanism to interpret that code and be able to manufacture based on those codes other things that I need in the cell you know, to function. And with my students, what I tried to do is compare that with like a modern city that has like, you know, blueprints in the city hall, you know, blueprints for building, you know, for buildings and roads and electrical power distribution networks and sewage systems and whatever. And I got all these blueprints in, in city hall and somehow there are people that interpret those blueprints and send out instructions out into the city for creating, you know, bridges and roads and again, power distribution and sewage control, et cetera. 
uh, and many other essential functions you know for the city to to actually work in this analogy for a cell to live but what really blows my mind in this analogy of a city the city as well as the cell has to be able to reproduce has to be able to split itself apart has to has to be able to create duplicates of itself first and then split itself apart it's like a city and while it's functioning and living and whatever we're going to start creating you know building two city halls and two highway networks and two sets of power distribution systems and two sets of sewage all at the same time while you know people are living and functioning and things and cars are going going around and then it's going to physically pull itself apart into two and all the while still function and when it's all done you got two that are fully functional that just blows my mind <laughs> to, to, to be very bluntly and there's some you know further reference in in our class material now here's here's the question randomness can produce that all this complex interaction from the blueprints in the dna to people that are interpreting those blueprints or micro machines within the cell that are reading the dna and creating all the proteins and all the other things that the cell needs um all of it has to exist all at once for life to exist that is sometimes called that argument is sometimes called irreducible complexity and i know that's a fancy term but but basically it comes back to the origin of life. Can I randomly assemble little bits and pieces from my environment or just have them kind of floating around, little bits of protein, whatever, uh, that over you know eons of time, millions of years, that these things will somehow just randomly come into a certain combination that it'll start itself up. And that just makes no sense, to be very blunt. Uh, because that, and so now we've got so that's, there's your evidence okay i got three different models how does that evidence you know which which model seems to be supported by that evidence and that's where you get into in the origin of life several different explanations i mean it wasn't that long ago you know 1800s um where they had the theory of quote unquote spontaneous generation now it's now been disproven but at the time it was a thought that you know living organisms could emerge spontaneously from matter what at the time was happening which they didn't realize for instance you know uh, larva would would emerge spontaneously out of rotting meat and what they didn't realize at the time was flies had planted their eggs in the meat and then the larva emerged from the meat but they hadn't yet developed that degree of, of sophistication to, to realize that uh, that living creatures could rise from non-living matter and that such processes were commonplace and quite regular and of course that's been disproven you know spontaneous generation so that doesn't fit there's something uh, a technical term called abiogenesis and basically that says life arose from non-living matter and, and that's that's the common view today that out of some primordial goo in some ancient ocean somehow these chemicals randomly sort of floating around and coming together produced this quote unquote simple life which we've already shown is not simple by any stretch uh 
And in fact, there have been some experiments to kind of try to show how that could be possible based on certain assumptions about the ancient oceans and passing electoral arcs through these sort of chemicals. But that doesn't work either because, again, you just get little random bits of proteins and they're certainly not collaborating, working together to you know, be self-replicating, for instance. So, you know, those sorts of experiments, you know, you may have heard of the Miller experiment. And that, that's what those were about, you know, back in the uh, uh, 1950s. You know, that doesn't work either because, again, they're based on assumptions and basically you wind up with little bits of stuff, but nothing that would resemble anything like a multi-million lines of computer program that's all working perfectly to produce the cell. And, you know, scientists, some scientists, have looked at this evidence and they say, mm, yeah, that's hard to believe. And so there's another theory called panspermia, which basically says, well, okay, life on this planet really didn't originate here. It originated somewhere else. You know, that, that life somehow, somehow, you know, uh, arose somewhere else in the galaxy and somehow made its way to Earth. Um, and that's why you often hear, you know, a lot of buzz in the scientific community with NASA, et cetera, about, you know, looking for life on other planets or looking for life in meteorites or evidence of life, et cetera. And so, again, people are trying to looking for evidence that life, you know, kind of came, you know, sailing across the, uh, the cosmos. Uh, and, of course, if... Uh, you know, it doesn't really resolve the problem. It just pushes it further away. Say, well, if it didn't, if life didn't originate on this planet, well, how did it originate on some other planet? Same problem. Again, with primordial goo and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that theory doesn't seem to fit real well, uh, which, which leads us to a yet another theory, sometimes called intelligent design. Now, that now begins to use this scientific evidence that we're seeing to make an argument for, guess what? The existence of some kind of designer, you know, and a, a design points to a designer. All this complexity in the simple cell points to something that can't just happen by randomness. That there has to be some scientific explanation that brings all this stuff together all at the same time and makes it viable. And again, that's part of intelligent design, um, which is consistent with what the Bible has to say. Now, admittedly, if you go out on the internet and you look up quote-unquote intelligent design, you will see some bias uh, against it because, after all, that is now a creation kind of thing, a supernatural kind of thing, and people will realize, well, that contradicts quote-unquote natural evolution, and so you may read some bias against it. But given all that complexity, which of the three models seems to fit best, given the complexity that we're seeing within the cell? Well, given that kind of overwhelming complexity, you know, it is certainly very reasonable to believe in an intelligent design by an intelligent designer who has the smarts and the ability to bring together what basically to us would be a super complex computer software program and the hardware to actually execute it and the ability for it to create copies of itself. And which which not even our modern technology can even approach it within our you know computer you know programs and software and hardware, and now we're talking about down on the scale it's tiny tiny super tiny. Anyway, in this particular case, from from non-life to life, 
given the complexity of life, um, the model that seems to fit the best is the creationist model. Brian, any comments? Yeah, very good summary. And that's the key question, right? And, and as we go throughout this, we're just going to keep asking the question, when you look at the evidence, as you pointed out, right, what, what is most likely? What makes the most sense? And as we continue to get into this, Jeff, I think it just becomes clearer and clearer, right? Many more questions with evolution, many more theories debunked, if you will, by just evaluating the complexities of our bodies and the universe around us, right? So anyhow, good thoughts. Well, and that's a good point because at least on a superficial level, <clears throat> again, you may hear people say, well, you know, life arose from non-life. It was simple life. Really? Simple life. Okay. Sometimes you have to, you know, push beyond kind of the superficial arguments and dig a little bit deeper. And sometimes when you do dig deeper, dig deeper, um, you will find that the evidence doesn't really support evolution. In fact, it actually refutes evolution and points to you know, creationism. But anyway, and we'll get more into that as, as we continue through the podcast. Yeah, so let's shift gears now and talk about what we might call diversification of life. So, you know, the complexity of various life forms and what might be responsible for their origin. So, you know, you've touched on some of these, Jeff, for instance, like motion, you know, the cells of our human body have many structures which move throughout them. And all of these structures have to work in harmony. Uh, you have multi-cell organisms. You have photosynthesis. And, you know, our listeners might remember from school, you know, when learning about plants, right? You know, so photosynthesis really is a process used by plants and other organisms to convert light energy into chemical energy and through something called cellular respiration can later be released, you know, to fuel the organism's metabolic activities. Um, things like circulation of our blood, blood clotting, if we get a cut, you know, so that it can seal or stop the bleeding, um, you know, coagulation, right? Your blood coagulates, it forms a scab, those kinds of things. Uh, you know, when you look at these and, and many other processes that you touched on, Jeff, we have to ask the question, you know, could have all these just happened by chance or could have all of these been developed through the evolutionary process? Uh, so as we dig into this, it, you know, once again, I just have that question in the back of your mind because that's what we're really trying to, to determine here. You know, there's a fascinating example of a beetle called the bombardier beetle. And it's defense mechanism. So if you think about it at a high level, whenever you have animals, you have insects, or you have anything, as we know, just from studying these animals in nature, uh, they have to have some defense mechanism. In fact, even plants, you know, plants have what's called lectins, so that if an insect eats the plant, the lectin makes the insect sick, so that the insect no longer wants to eat that, right? It's a defense mechanism from the plant so that once again, it's not eaten uh, by these by these bugs. Well, when you look at a beetle or any other insect, for instance, uh, you know they're going to probably or they will have to have some defense mechanism, or they become extinct pretty quickly. So if you take a beetle, little insect, birds eat these all the time, for instance. If it didn't have a defense mechanism, well, you know through evolution they become extinct pretty quickly, right? Because they can't defend themselves. So when it comes to this bombardier beetle, what you see if you examine is that it has or it has the ability to produce three separate chemicals that it stores, 
that it has a valve to release it through and what's called a reaction chamber that allows them to aim this mechanism, if you will, so that it can spray in a, in a certain direction. So what does that tell us? Well, when you think about this particular mechanism, it all has to work in harmony with one another. So in other words, it, it you know, when you think about evolution, if it just had the chemical, but it didn't have a way to release it, or if it had the chemical or the valve, but it could only release it in one direction, maybe it can only protect itself from something coming up from behind, but not in front of it or a bird that swoops in to grab it. Uh, so when you look at that and you say, well, all of these had to be together. In other words, it couldn't have evolved over time. It would have had to all be there at one time. Otherwise, this beetle could not protect itself. So what does that prove? Well, it proves that it had to be what we call fully formed and it could not have developed these characteristics over years. Now, once scientists realize that, you know, okay, we, we have to acknowledge that and it conflicts with this idea of evolution over, you know, a long period of time for this beetle to have all of those qualities, they started coming up with alternate theories like something called punctuated equilibrium where they would then argue, well, the evolution happened pretty quickly. So we agree it all of these things would, would need to be there for the beetle to protect itself. So it happened very quickly. But if you think about that logic, even then, the bug would not have survived to evolve because it wouldn't have survived at all without any defense mechanism. So if you tell me, well, he didn't, you know, or the, the beetle didn't evolve over millions of years, it was just thousands of years or hundreds of years or even 10 years, that beetle wouldn't survive 10 years with no defense mechanism. So it's just a fallacious argument if you think about it. Um, you know, there are many examples of this where species, once again, would not have survived if they were not fully formed and they didn't have these defense mechanisms. And, you know, there's an interesting quote, Jeff, from Charles Darwin, if you look in his writing on the origin of the species, where he says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So I think that's a good quote because he's exactly right. It falls apart if you can prove that these things couldn't possibly have been formed in the way they were over millions of years. So anyhow, before we continue on, Jeff, any thoughts about that and, and uh, how that helps us to understand the problems with evolution? Well, and in the particular case of the, the bombardier beetle you mentioned, I, I have a reference here on the internet I was pulling up while you were talking. Um, so was, there's at least, <laughs> this little critter produces at least two chemicals, one of which includes is hydrogen peroxide. Uh, they're mixed together and the resulting spray is at the boiling point of water. Interesting, you know, 212 wow. roughly degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. It's a predator. Huh? <laughs> uh, and part of the chemical I think is hydro quinone uh which may also have some you know acidic or poisonous properties but but the fact that it can produce these things you know produce the chemicals store them safely in its body release them when needed mix together at the right mixture it doesn't blow itself up or you know corrode back into its internal organs uh it's just mind-boggling uh if our readers you know study things like photosynthesis or study you know how our blood clots uh, you know, blood clotting is a good example. If you look at all of the chemical reactions that have to occur, it's not just 
the blood clots. Well, no, 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 no. It's very much more complex than that. Um, so there's all kinds of cascading chemical reactions and enzymes and proteins and everything. It's all that's required to produce the clot where you need it, when you need it, and not just randomly in the body. You know, those kind of clots kill people, right? <laughs> um, and that once things are sort of stabilizing back to normal, takes that, you know, clot and then reabsorbs it. Extremely complex, just extremely complex. And many of these other examples we could cite that, you know, people can go out in the internet. You know, so that, that's kind of the, the evidence that's in front of us. These very, very complex, multiple interactions of all different kinds of chemicals, like within our bodies or within insects or other animals. You know, what model best fits it? So, yeah, that's, uh, I'll turn it back over to you, Brian. It's just the more you dig into it, the more fascinating it is. Yeah, we and then we go back to that question. Is it reasonable to say that this could have either happened by chance or over millions of years through evolution? And, you know, we were, I was mentioning that, you know, when you start debunking some of these philosophies of men, as we see in many subjects, not just evolution, that they change the argument, right? And so we'll look at a couple more where, you know, in addition to proposing this rapid evolution as an, a potential answer, uh, there's some other explanations, right? So some would point to what's called uh, Lamarxism or Lamarckian inheritance. And so this is where, you know, there's a belief that an organism can pass on to its offspring physical characteristics that the parent organism acquired through use or disuse during its lifetime. For example, muscles or tan skin or, you know, a giraffe's neck, stretched neck. Why is this something that doesn't fit, if you will? Well, when you look at inheritance, it's really through genetics, not acquired characteristics. And we'll get a little bit more into that in a minute, but but you also have this thought of natural selection or survival of the fittest, which is what our listeners probably recognize from Darwin, Charles Darwin, right? These were his philosophies. And so what does it mean, natural selection, survival of the fittest? Well, natural selection is the process whereby organisms better adapted to their environment tend to survive and produce more offspring. Um, and so, you know, you think about survival of the strongest, if you will, it might be another way that you look at it. And in fact, you know, this is kind of believed to be the main process that brings about evolution. And so, Jeff, there are, there are some examples of, you know, this existing genetic diversity. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like, you know, dogs and antibiotic resistance and so forth that would kind of help to illustrate some, some challenges with this. Right. Well, and I think what we, what we can actually observe, you know, in our natural environment are um, creatures that, you know, over time uh, to some degree change or, or at least uh, appear to change. I mean, for instance, even over our lifetime and, and, you know, looking back into, you know, some of the historical records, like things with dogs, you know, by changing their environment and, you know, selective breeding, et cetera, you know, we can easily see there's a, there's a lot of genetic diversity within, for instance, dogs that over time, you know, via their environment and selection process, of course, in this case, this is humans doing the selection, but through a selection process, you know, that favors, you know, 
dogs with certain coloration, hair texture, height, width, uh, different abilities, you know, we have been able to, or the genetic material has been able to uh, accommodate, so to speak. You know, large dogs, you know, Great Danes and Grand Pyrenees and tiny dogs like Chihuahuas and dogs that are, you know, short and squatty, but elongated. Uh, like, uh, you know, small hounds and what we would call wiener dogs. Uh, and, you know, dogs that are, you know, able to be extremely furry or, or, or have very little fur or et cetera, or very fast, uh, et cetera, like greyhounds. And so a lot of genetic uh, diversity or genetic variability within the dogs. And of course, with, again, with the environment around them changing, you know, some dogs, survive better in different environments. We, we, we see that, right? Um, certainly we see it in the modern era with uh, bacteria, with viruses, where, you know, for instance, with, you know, a given bacteria and the introduction of uh, antibiotics, you know, we, we triumphed over, you know, some, some kinds of bacteria. Well, sort of. But there's enough variation within bacteria, for instance, that, you know, not every single one of them was killed off, you know, when we introduced penicillin, for instance, that some perhaps had some genetic variation that allowed a few of them perhaps to survive. And because of that, that was passed on to their, you know, that, that variation or that uh, ability was passed on their offspring. And, and now we have penicillin resistant, you know, strains of bacteria uh, today. I think one of the, one of the more interesting cases of natural selection occurring um, was observed actually in New England, or not New England, sorry, in England, you know, during the Industrial Revolution uh, with a certain kind of moth that before the Industrial Revolution, uh, there was a color variation. I mean, there were lighter colored moths and darker colored moths. And, and given the fact that the trees in the area were tended to be lighter colored, well, the lighter colored moths were favored. They tended to survive and the darker colored moths tended to beaten a few managed to survive but uh, ratio wise mostly light a few dark then along comes the industrial revolution use of coal burning of coal putting soot in the environment that soot settles on the trees the tree the bark starts to turn dark and now the lighter colored moths are more visible and they start more of them start getting eaten and the darker colored moths are now better camouflaged and fewer of them get eaten. And of course, they pass that along. And so the population shifts. Post-industrial evolution, coal gets replaced by natural gas, et cetera. And the skies you know, start clearing up and the trees start reverting back to their normal lighter colored pigmentation, so to speak, you know, because the soot's not on them anymore. And now the darker moths are, are easy, more easily seen and start getting picked off more by the birds. And the lighter colored moths, you know, start you know, fitting in better, uh, better camouflaged. And so you see the ratio of the population kind of shift yet again. But the key point in the example with the dogs, or the key point to some degree in example with the bacteria, and especially with the moths, is you had this, you know, genetic material already pre-existing. You can see that with the moths. I had light colored moths and dark colored moths before and during and after revolution. So natural selection, admittedly, certainly is a process that's out there that does favor, in some cases, some characteristics over others, if you happen to have the characteristic. But in and of itself, it doesn't explain how you got the characteristic 
to begin with. It, it doesn't explain the origin of the new genetic material. It certainly explains when it gets material gets shuffled around that different variations may be advent. But it doesn't really speak to how that original genetic material gets uh, its origin. So yeah, lots of, lots of interesting examples. And again, this, Brian, this is an area where in some cases, you know, based on the evidence, yes, we can see this happening. Uh, and we may get into this a little bit later. Uh, we certainly see this degree of, uh, you know, change or, you know, shifting populations. But in and of itself, this natural selection does, or survival of the fittest can't account for the origin of, of new genetic material. Yeah, and, and so it sounds like you're saying the environment influenced which moths survived and which sure. were eaten, and it really had nothing to do with survival of the fittest, right? Well, at least for them in their environment, some were fitter than others, but it doesn't tell you, uh, it doesn't account for the origin of the genetic material that would produce a difference in coloration. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's it's... It is there. It is a mechanism that sometimes does favor a fitter, but something's missing. And I think the something that's missing, uh, I think you're going to uh, introduce our listeners to next. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, just one other thought for me on this, you know, we, so I, I think it's a good example of, yeah, th there's some partial truths in this, right? In True. the sense I, absolutely. that you, you think about a herd of, of elephants, for instance, uh, you know, the weak, the young, the, the you know, the Sickly. vulnerable, if you will, are going to be taken out. Right. And so, you know, logically, that means the stronger survive, right? They're more likely to be able to not be killed. <laughs> so, true, you know, the environment true. does help some of that, but, you know, not in the strict sense that, of course, Darwin would suggest. So. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, another one is genetic mutations. And this is, of all the discussions I've had over the years, this is one argument that evolutionists love to bring up. Well, all of these changes are, you know, in the needed defense mechanisms and things that we've talked about uh, came about because of genetic mutation. So that's how they'll explain it. Well, let's look at what is a genetic mutation and what, what causes it. So if you look at kind of a simple definition of a genetic mutation, it's really a random and permanent alteration in our DNA sequence that makes up the gene. So when you think about mutations, you know, they come in many forms, if you will, in many sizes. So for instance, they can affect anywhere from a single DNL building block to a large segment of a chromosome that includes multiple genes. And, you know, mutations are caused by external factors. So for instance, when you think about being exposed to radiation or you breathe some chemical uh, or it could even be internal factors such as, you know, there was a problem in copying the DNA during reproduction. You know, these are things that can happen that result in genetic mutations. And so some examples that we see in, in our lives are, for instance, sickle cell anemia, people who are colorblind or that have Down syndrome, autism. You know, these are all examples of what can occur when you have a genetic mutation. Now, one thing that is good is that it's pretty rare. It is usually harmful, so not in every case, but I would say more often than not, Jeff, I would say more often than not, mm -hmm. it results in something harmful. So when you think about somebody who has Down syndrome or what we might call mentally retarded or autism, well, I think we can all see that's a very negative effect of a genetic mutation. 
And so, you know, but what it can account for is, you know, these complex interdependent characteristics that we've been talking about, you know, these simple random changes cannot generate something complex like our eyes and our brains. And so, you know, I think that's an important point here because when you look at these mutations, number one, it often results in something like retardation and, and so forth. And, you know, even these simple random ch changes cannot result in something complex. And when we talk about our eyes and our brains, if you've ever studied the human eye, it's one of the most complex parts of our body that to this day have many attributes that scientists just can't explain. Or how about our brains? If you look at the number of computations that the human brain can do within one second, it still far surpasses the strongest and fastest supercomputer in this world. And there are still many, once again, facets of the brain that just can't be understood. And so to think that you could have something like a genetic mutation result in being able to have something as complex as an eye or a brain, it just doesn't make sense. And so, you know, the, the study that we talked about that you can reference, there's more material in there for more in-depth information. I encourage you to study that because once again, it's people just throw out genetic mutations and, you know, it, it just, the evidence doesn't bear out that once again, this could result in something complex. Well, and one of the things that I, I tried to emphasize to my uh, teenage students uh, in, in a way that they could perhaps relate to. I mean, some of them were, you know, just beginning to get into computer programming. And I said, well, you know, I mean, take this very complex computer program, you know, millions of lines of code, you know, similar to, you know, like a Microsoft operating system, you know, for instance. And I'm just going to go in and just start hacking. I'm just going to randomly change, you know, one instruction to a different instruction, or I'm just going to randomly change, you know, one bit of, you know, a piece of data to an actual instruction or a piece of instruction to a piece of data or just whatever, just, just go in and start just randomly tweaking stuff. And, and we all recognize that basically a few tweaks and this thing is going to start to suffer and a few more tweaks is just going to collapse. Uh, the other example that, that I gave to my students was like, you know, if you're driving down the road in a car, and you just start randomly tweaking things to the tires or the engine or the transmission or the electrical system or the battery or the whatever, or, or the, the gasoline mixture, just randomly start tweaking things. And what's going to happen? I mean, am, am I going to just kind of randomly tweak that car into a plane? Well, no. Uh, am I going to randomly tweak that car into a piece of junk? <laughs> dead <laughs> beside the road. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you start talking about, you know, dealing with any sort of complexity and random changes, which do happen with natural selection, which does happen, basically results in the mechanism either dying off or being impaired and not the introduction of new, better, even more complex evolutionary advantageous characteristics that can be then you know passed on to the descendants so yeah it just doesn't seem to fit the uh, the natural model does it yeah well stated and i, I tell you it, it does come down to complexity doesn't it? if we were just simple organisms with very you know few complexities okay you, you might be able to make an argument but i think you really nailed it when you talk about complexity into complexity and, you know, one of the other kind of hallmark arguments of evolutionists is this, you know, change of one life form 
such as a plant or an animal or an amoeba into something else. And, you know, that's just another example of they kind of have to go down this path if you want to have one species turn into something else. And so when you think about, but what is a species? Well, species is kind of at a simple level, a group of living organisms consisting of similar individuals capable uh, capable of exchanging genes or interbreeding. And so we have a species. And in the Bible, uh, the term kind is used to describe this. And so we see that starting in Genesis chapter one. And so in, in the Bible, it's really kind of a broad term, you know, describe a class of life forms such as birds or, you know, animals or so forth. And then within this kind or class of animals, there is genetic diversity uh, within that class but not a transformation or evolution into another kind, you know, that, that cannot be proven within the fossil record. So what, what am I saying? Well, if you had this genetic diversity that was outside of that class, right, or that kind, then surely within the fossil record, we would see fossils of organisms that were going through this transformation or evolution. So it was this kind of species and some early fossils. You know, we get uh, several thousand years down the road. We see that it is evolved now where it has an arm, where it didn't have an arm in that earlier fossil. And now we get farther down the world uh, and we see it has a leg, right? And so there, we just see nothing like this in the fossil record. So when you ask somebody about that and you say, well, hang on, why don't we see this transitory fossil material, if you will? Well, their argument is, well, it takes millions of years. You know, you wouldn't see it over the course of a couple hundred years. It has to be millions of years. And I, I think, Jeff, that's just a convenient way, right, to kind of explain away why we don't see these, these fossils. Right. And I think we've got some uh, more material on that as well further on. Yeah, where I, I kind of like to go with, with my, my students was, you know, you mentioned biblical kinds. And certainly that was in the original creation, you know, Genesis 1. Uh, you know, coming off of the ark uh, after the great flood, you know, you certainly have, or going onto the ark and then coming after the ark, you know, two of every kind, again, a general kind of class, you know, two of a cat kind of kind or two of a dog kind of kind. And then what we see over time, for instance, with a dog kind of kind, if you will, uh, yeah, some genetic diversity, uh, genetic diversification, if you will, into perhaps, you know, wolves, or what we recognize as domesticated dogs, or dingoes, or perhaps foxes, etc. You know, dog-like uh, creatures. Uh, so, you know, do we see change or variation within a kind? Yeah, I mean, that's I think that's pretty evident. What we don't see, as you're alluding to, is a change of one kind to another kind, like from a dog to a cat, for instance. Or we start off with cats and then we wind up with dogs, uh, etc. Because again, we're talking about a large number of you know highly complex kind of things for a given kind to survive, um, and you start pushing it, you know, beyond that kind of a core set of capabilities, and things just don't work as well. In fact, Brian, if if you talk to like dog breeders, my understanding is, you know, with some kind of dogs, as they get more and more purebred, or as they get more and more push to the extreme, you know, extremely large or extremely heavy or extremely fast or extremely short or, uh, 
with uh, extremely short noses or you know, whatever the case may be, uh, that the breed is less and less uh, viable. You know, they have more and more problems. Like you may hear, you know, some dogs that have problems, you know, bigger dogs, problems with their hips, right? Or some dogs like pugs that have their noses, you know, are, are so small that now they're having problems breathing, right? So it's almost like this kind, this biblical kind has a lot of variation, but as you get more and more to the outer edges, um, the organism seems to suffer more and more problems, which would tend to indicate as you get closer to the edge, the more extreme cases start to die off because they're less viable, which would tend to keep the kind as a kind, if you will, and not enable a kind to keep changing limitlessly into other kinds. So makes for uh, uh, interesting observation, e even within our own uh, experiences. Yeah, I completely agree. Good, good information. All right. Well, so that kind of brings us to the end of part one uh, of this study. And just want to encourage you to come back next week because we're going to continue this and, and talk a little bit more about, for instance, evidence for other forms of evolution, such as, you know, the suggestion of the Big Bang Theory. We'll take a look at theistic evolution, as we discussed, you know, kind of mixing God and evolution. Uh, we'll then get into talking about, you know, the geological record and, you know, dating methods, how ancient life is dated to determine how old it really is. And then we'll also get into things like the fossil record, dinosaurs and man. And ultimately, we'll finish up with what does the Bible teach, right? And along the way, as we go through this, we're going to look at passages, more passages as well to help really show what the Bible says about some of these things. So encourage you to come back and for part two, and we'll dig a little bit deeper into this subject. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.